Radio, episode 6 in the mix, eh? The family is God's thing. The civil order is God's thing. The church is God's thing. These things play by God's rules. People usually talk about the regulative principle of worship. Something similar should be said about the family and about the civil order. Because these are all God's institutions. We don't get to do our own thing. Yeah, I say the final installment of this division of episodes after this we continuing on eyes are thrilled one to not be grilled on ability and skill of rhyming with christian vision prescription are glad that this done let me bless the studio uh, fix up the microphone check one two three go sure. this is udo ibeleme your host and welcome to this show Jesus. welcome this is the last and final episode of the christian vision prescription um we've done four well, this would be the fourth one that we're doing. Let's quickly just do a recap of what we've done in the previous three parts. First of all, we've spoken about how we know what we know. And we're talking about, like, when we're looking at everything, how do we know that we are seeing what we should be seeing? All knowledge comes to us from God. This God, of course, is the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the creator of all things, the one who determines all things. Um, he is Trinity. Um, three persons, one being. There's one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are each properly called and worshipped as God, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons from each other, right? We've spoken about this God being holy, and we've spoken about this God being an inescapable concept since he is the true God and the one who has created and has told us enough about himself to glorify him and give him thanks when we suppress those things we put someone else in god's place and so to whatever degree we deny god any of his attributes we attribute that to someone or something else and that's how idolatry comes in right god has created everything um and he did it the way the bible says that he did it um he did it in an orderly fashion and he created all things good and he created things to be conquered by mankind which he created in his image and likeness male and female as the bible says right the ethical concerns that the bible gives us right um about what is right and what is wrong god declares and defines these things he defines what is right what is wrong um our main ethical concern is to love god secondary is to love neighbor all right um that means that it's not just the things that we say and do but also the things that we think and feel are of moral concern right god blesses obedience and curses obedience disobedience to his own moral standards his law all right morality has consequences we see this in the little things that we do but we also see this in the fall being a result of sin sin affects everything negatively all right and sin is the problem not things god's world is not the problem the things that god has created are not the problem things are the problem god is holy so he has to deal with this what the old testament teaches us about how god deals with the things that are wrong in the world, how he deals with sin, is that he punishes it and he can do it directly or he can be gracious and instead prepare a substitute for us, right? Um, we see this through animal sacrifice throughout the Old Testament, all right? Now, God has purposed um, since the foundation of the world to, to save his chosen people he has also purposed to save those who would believe in jesus he has also purposed to save the world but not each and every individual all will not be saved right jesus died on the cross for the sins of his people and uh, all who repent and believe will be seen as just before god all right um you're cool with god if you repent and believe the gospel you repent and believe on Jesus to take that punishment for your sin in your place, then you would have done so, right? Repentance and faith, um, it is the call of the gospel, but it is something that only God can fulfill in us. Repentance and faith is a gift from God, and uh, that is a way in which God makes us new and then by the basis of that faith, we are then justified. We're cool with God. After that, um, sanctification is the process by which we are made better. Of course, um, the new man 
has new affections and he loves God and he loves God's ethics and so he strives to follow those things. All right. Glorification. When Jesus comes back, we will be um, resurrected. We will be given glorified bodies and we will live forever with him. Um, and all sin, all these nuisance sins that we deal with even as Christians through our lives, those things will be done away with, right? Glorification makes the new man perfect and God saves and saves to the uttermost. So from the beginning all the way to the end, that faith that comes from God, it comes and it's a victorious faith and it wins. It doesn't lose. People do fall away. That has nothing to do with God and his success. Because when he saves, he saves to the uttermost. And uh, even though other people believe the gospel, some people don't believe in its cosmic effects. In the same way that um, Adam's disobedience has brought curses, Jesus' obedience has brought the greatest blessing in the redemption of all of creation. Adam's disobedience plunged all of creation into the fall and Jesus's obedience is redeeming all of creation. Um, and uh, that has cosmic, societal, multinational and eternal implications that should not be ignored. This is what um, the prophets spoke of. I did read some passages from Isaiah with regards to this. Right? This is what the prophets spoke of. This is what the prophets believed. Right, The gospel changes everything. When the Messiah comes, it changes everything. It doesn't just change our hearts. It changes the world. And uh, that is something that we should believe. All right? So that is my very, very quick recap of what we spoke about last time. We're going to get into our new content now. And... Uh, we're going to talk about how God deals with us, all right? One thing that we need to understand about God is that um, God doesn't change. And the Bible goes through pains to tell us that God doesn't change, okay? Um, Malachi, he is a prophet. He is a prophet from after the exile. And he is saying, um, he is... He is given the word of God and God says, For I, the Lord, that is Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, the sons of Jacob at this point in time, they might be given a little bit of problems. They might be given a little bit of trouble. But because God doesn't change, they're not consumed. Let's hold on to that. Okay? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 um, says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and today, and forever, all right? And uh, in Hebrews, Bob, or whatever his name is that wrote Hebrews, he's talking about, he's talking about the gospel, and he's telling his brothers, like, hold on to this gospel, and don't go back to anything else. Hold on to the gospel, all right? Other things might shift. This is steady, all right? Um, James chapter 1 verse 17 he says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow okay um, Psalm 90 verse 2 before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting you are God so before everything started and from everlasting to everlasting, God is God. Okay. Um, now we keep on hearing about God not changing, about God being steady, about him being the same and all of these things. And there is um, a sense in which we need to be able to understand how God deals with men because God doesn't deal equally with all of us right when god deals with all of us he deals with us in different ways um if we look at the bible god has dealt in different ways with different people over the course of history 
what would be the the what would be the the reason that he deals differently with different people would it be because god changed from here to there no would it be because he has stopped being as constant as he always has been no would it be because times have changed and god has to get with the times no can't be any of those things right let's keep going um psalm 33 11 the counsel of the lord stands forever the plans of his heart from generation to generation so we have to remember this is the god that determines all things all right he has this counsel that stands forever and the plans of his heart regardless of what we see what type of interaction we see in the scriptures between god and man and it might look a particular way the counsel of the lord stands forever the plans of his heart from generation to generation those interactions were in a sense divinely rigged god wanted them to take place in that way you understand and this is these are his plans his plans are steady all right what else is steady? There are things about God that are steady. Maybe some of these things that are steady can help us understand the ways in which God might deal differently with different people or at different times, right? Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. All right? That's Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. All right? So the word of God, it stands forever. Could it be based on what God has said in particular situation? He acts based on that. And so his word can be trusted. His word can be trusted. What he says can be trusted. Even though it might not be contextually relevant in one place as it is in another but his word can be trusted um numbers chapter 23 verse 19 god is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not make it good so based on what he says he will do right Based on what he says he will do. Psalm 119 verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Alright? 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Okay? God can't deny himself. He's going to remain faithful. Regardless of what happens, he is going to remain faithful. So no matter how different we might see God's operation from one situation to another. It's based on principle and it's based on his word. So we know that God will always act in accordance with his word. So now we have the question of context. Three very, very important things when dealing with the word of God. Context, context, context we are not just going to assume hey look something changed okay so that means that from this time to this time this is going to happen and then from this time to this time this is going to happen no there is a context in which these things happen and the context can be temporal it can be geographical and it can be national familial personal ecclesiastical the context context are very is very very important all right and uh, what is the context of god's dealing with man from what i see it is the covenant all right well the covenants god deals with men based based on covenants now, there are people who have different views on how these covenants work, how they relate to each other, how 
one covenant can help us understand the next and therefore our own covenantal context and how we should live based on that. There are people who understand that differently and uh, I am not going to talk about that at all. What I'm going to talk about is the fact that God relates to man based on covenant. It's not arbitrary. It's not, well, you know, from this time to that time or this time to that time, whatever. It is based on a covenant. All right? Um, there's a sense in which there is a word that God speaks. Right? There's a word that God speaks in a particular context and uh, there might be rituals associated with it. Um, we look in the Bible and we see that covenants sometimes and oaths and those sorts of things, they are made um, in terms of rituals. Blood is sometimes spilt or sprinkled. Stuff is cut up or there's a meal. All of those things, they are different ways of making covenants right but god deals with men in terms of covenants um generally speaking the way in which it has been understood that god relates with man is in covenants even our bible has that understanding of covenant in the way we divide our table of contents in terms of the scriptures right the word testament is basically a synonym for the word covenant, right? So Old Testament is like saying Old Covenant. New Testament is like saying New Covenant. You understand? Um, another word um, that has been used for covenant, so for instance, the United States has a federal government and that um, idea of a federal government of a federation that's another synonym for covenant federal doesn't mean big government or the biggest government or whatever the case is it's covenantal it's about a covenant this is what this is our thing this is our this is our entity that we've agreed to ratify like this whatever the case is it's covenant all right um and that is how these or those, sorry, because I'm not there. That is how those United States are supposed to um, interact with each other based on their own founding documents, etc. Um, I'm not there, so I can't speak too much to that. But I do know, based on scriptures and based on what has been generally understood, that there are certain covenants on the basis of which God interacts with man. First of all, God has made a covenant with Adam. All right, God has made a covenant with mankind. If you look in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, um, there have been people who have come up with different ways of putting something together like theologians they might come up with a different way of saying well okay if you look at the structure of genesis 1 or genesis 2 or genesis 3 um this is this part of the covenant and this is that part of the covenant and all of those things um i don't think i qualify as that type of theologian um i am a layman and i'm speaking to laymen i'm a normal every man and i'm speaking to normal every man on the other side and i want the every man to be able to understand what i'm saying and so i'll try to be as plain as possible and just talk about what i see in the scripture did god have a covenant with adam is it in the scripture yes hosea chapter 6 verse 7 says but like adam they have transgressed the covenant there they have dealt treacherously against me so hosea was a prophet and he is comparing a they that is um third person plural some some entity across there 
not very important for what I'm saying here. But he's comparing that entity to Adam. They have transgressed their covenant with God in the same way that Adam has transgressed his covenant with God. And how do we know that the covenant is with God? Hosea is bringing the word of the of the Lord. And uh, the second part of the verse says, There they have dealt treacherously against me. Alright? So, these guys that Hosea is speaking to or speaking about, they have transgressed, they have broken their covenant, the terms of their covenant with God. In like manner that Adam broke the terms of his covenant with God. Alright? So, there was a covenant. And uh, in that Genesis 3 narrative, Adam broke that covenant. In his sin, in the fall, Adam broke that covenant. Okay, so there is that covenant and it's a covenant that we can say has ramifications for all of creation. Because when Adam breaks the covenant, what happens? Um, the... The creation itself is going to change. And the thing that Adam was tasked to work with, which is the ground, is going to antagonize against him, right? It's going to be hard to till this ground now. And the ground is going to bear thorns and thistles. And uh, one can argue from that that the creation itself is going to have that same kind of... Um, is going to be an enemy of Adam in the same way, you understand? This is what happens when Adam transgresses the covenant the whole creation as we spoke about last time is subjected to futility because of what adam has done all right so this covenant has ramifications so in a sense you can say that god made a covenant with mankind you can also say god has made a covenant with all of creation but the covenant head would be adam all right so God has made a covenant with Adam and we can look at God's interactions with Adam in that context. If there's a covenant and it's broken, then there is treachery as Hosea describes it here in chapter 6 verse 7. There they have dealt treacherously against me. All right. God also had a covenant with Noah. All right. Um... And we can see this plainly in Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to read from verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Alright? God has said very clearly, He has a covenant with the entire world, with the post-Diluvian world, which is a fancy way of saying the world after post the flood deluge right so god has a covenant with the world after the flood and the head of that is noah everybody that lives now is under that covenant we are all children of noah 
we are all children of Noah. All right? Um, God says other things to Noah earlier on in Genesis 9. Check it out. All of those things are important for us to, to even live by because we are a part of this. Again, we look at how God deals with mankind and we look at the covenants that God has made at certain times and we can see our own context, our covenantal context. That's very important for us to be able to notice and see that, right? So God has a covenant with Adam, yes. God also had a covenant with Noah. It has also been understood that God had a covenant with Abraham, all right? Um, Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to read from verse 18. On that day, the Lord, which is Yahweh, made a covenant with Abram. At this point, he was Abram, right? Saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. All right, so God has made a covenant with Abraham and uh, that covenant is to establish all of the things that even he said to him in Genesis 12, which is stuff like through you, all the families of the earth would be blessed, which we see all over the scriptures going forward as well, even in the New Testament as alluded to, right? Um... So God has a covenant with Abraham. We see it very clear here. And uh, just like there's a sign for God's covenant with the post-Diluvian world in the rainbow, as we just read in Genesis 9, Genesis 17 tells us of a sign that God gave to Abraham, right? And at this point, he's Abraham. So I'm going to read from... I'm going to read Genesis chapter 17 from verse 9. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God has made a covenant with Abraham and circumcision, cutting off the foreskin of the penis. This is God's stipulated sign for his covenant with Abraham. So God had a covenant with the world under Adam. God had a covenant with the world under Noah. God had a covenant with Abraham. And God also had a covenant with Israel through Moses. All right. So even though God had a covenant with the world... We often call the one that was through Adam, we call it the Adamic covenant. The one that was through Noah, they usually call it the Noahic covenant. And then, of course, Abraham's covenant will be called Abrahamic. And then this other one is usually called Mosaic, right? But those are the terms that are used, right? But God had a covenant with all of Israel, all right? There's a lot of things that are referred to as you know covenant and all of those things what we see from the bible according to what the bible says god's covenant with israel god's covenant document with israel is the 10 commandments or the 10 words if we are to speak literally right exodus chapter 34 verse 28 so he that's moses 
was there with the Lord, that's Yahweh, 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Okay? So the Ten Commandments that we find in uh, Exodus chapter 20, those Ten Commandments, those Ten words from verse 2 go down all the way down to the, the, the bottom of where God was speaking. All of those, that is the covenant document that God had with Moses. All right? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses recaps the fact that um, this 10 words, this this um sayings here, these 10 sayings, these 10 words, these that would be the covenant document that God has with Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to, to perform. That is the 10 commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. All right. Now, I am saying that this is the covenant document that um, God had with Israel. Um, am I saying that because this is the do covenant document that God had with Israel, that there is absolutely no benefit to it at all on our part? No, I'm not. The Bible tells us that the things that are written in the Old Testament are written for our instruction, right? Um, we see a lot of commandments repeated to us in the New Testament. We see laws pulled out of the Old Testament and used as reasoning for dealing with certain ethical concerns in the New Testament. So um, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I am recognizing, however, is that its original context is as a covenant document for Israel. Um, God speaks to Israel in the covenant. He says, I am the Lord, your God. That's how it starts. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's how the 10 words start. All right. So this is within a certain context and should be understood in that context and Applied, of course, broadly because it's God's law. So it's moral, it's ethical, and it's good. It's holy, righteous, and good as, as the Bible tells us in the New Testament. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. That's in Romans, I believe. All right? So that's not what I'm saying. But understanding what we have in front of us as we read it, this is the covenant that God made with them. Okay? And uh, we also have a sign here as well. Exodus chapter 31. I'm going to read from verse 12. In terms of a covenant sign, um, this is what I see here. All right. The Lord, that is Yahweh, spoke to Moses saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Right? So this is the covenant sign. In the same way that um, circumcision is an important covenant sign, it's not the covenant sign of the Mosaic covenant. It's the covenant sign of the Abrahamic covenant. God gave it to Abraham. The covenant sign here is the Sabbath. And it's important that um, the same type of language is used 
with regards to those who disregard to obey this sign within the context of that covenant. They will be taken out of it. They will be cut off from their people. The one who isn't circumcised, he will be cut off from his people. The one who doesn't observe the Sabbath, he will be cut off from his people. If we read the law, we will see that um, even um, transgressing the Sabbath is or was in that particular context a capital crime it's a capital crime to transgress the sabbath and this is because this is the the sign this is the sign of god's covenant with israel and you're not keeping it all right so it's a very very important thing all right um so god has a covenant with the world through abraham with the world with the world through Adam, sorry, with the world through Noah, with the world with with Abraham, sorry, with Israel through Moses. And we also see that God has a covenant with David. Now um Second Samuel chapter seven verse from verse twelve all the way through to verse sixteen shows us something that God gives as a message to David um with regards to how God would deal with him um, after he is gone. And uh, this can be referred to as a covenant, but we don't have the word covenant here. All right, but I will read it. It says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So in a sense, we see that God has made a promise to David here. Second Samuel chapter 7. God has made a promise to David there, right? But the word of the word covenant is not used, right? Here's the thing, right? Um, as I said, I'm doing this for the every man, for the for the regular Joe Christian, and I don't want to just say something that I'm asserting because of um, tradition or some sort of okay, this is what we've always held, so I have to hold it whatever the case is, and I want to be able to make a good case. Um, there have been folks who have said, okay, and this is their own um, understanding of what a covenant is. They've, they've come up with their theories. Okay, a covenant has these parts. A covenant has this, that, and the other. And sometimes they, they, they do what me and my contemporaries call reaching in order to put the text into the system that they've created to see what a covenant is and then claim covenant out of things. Um, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to submit to any system or even create my own. I just wanted to um, examine, of course, those things that have been generally understood to be, okay, these are covenants. Um, does the Bible say that they are? And this is a promise that God gave to David. Can we use the word covenant though? Yes. Jeremiah chapter 33 from verse 19. Okay. The word of the Lord, that is Yahweh, came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. So, did God make a covenant with David? Yes. 
Second Samuel do use the word covenant, but Jeremiah says, Yahweh is a covenant. Who am I to disagree? Who is anyone to disagree? Right? So the Bible tells us clearly that God has made a that God made a covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Israel, with David. Alright? And finally, we can also see that God has made a covenant with his people through Jesus. Okay? This is the one that we call the New Testament. The, the New Testament or the New Covenant. Alright? We call this one the New Covenant. Now, you have the, as I say, the names, they, they would use Adamic, Noahic, um, Abrahamic, Mosaic for the one with Israel, and Davidic. This one, they call it new. You understand? The new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 from verse 31. And this is a prophecy of what would happen later. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah says there will be a new covenant and in this new covenant the law of God will be written on men's hearts. Alright? And this is the covenant that we have. In 1 Corinthians 11 which is not in my notes um, Paul deals with some mishandling of what we call communion or the Lord's Supper Lord's table, all of those things, right? Um, and he starts to recite basically um, what he has received from the Lord, okay? And uh, this is just um, in terms of the pattern in which the Lord's Supper would have been done, all right? So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also deliver, delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. So, they would take the bread and they would say, you know, this is Jesus' body. We're doing it in remembrance of him. And then they would eat. And then after they eat, they would take the cup of wine and they would say, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. So, in the same way that we have in Exodus blood being sprinkled on the people of Israel and Moses saying this is the blood of the covenant the blood of God's covenant with Israel through Moses all right Moses being the mediator of that covenant here we have Jesus given a token of blood to his disciples all right and that wine him being the mediator of this new covenant the only mediator. You don't have Moses for a mediator. Alright? Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And he gives us this blood. And he says, this is the covenant of the blood. This is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant. You understand? This is the new covenant that's ratified in my blood. You understand? So, there is a sense in which, as often 
as we do this. And we know from the Bible elsewhere that this was something that they did every first day. They would meet every first day. One of the things we know they did every first day was that they collected offering. We also know that they did this, right? And they, they, they did communion. So they're doing this. And in a sense, there is covenant renewal. An understanding of what has happened on the cross in which Jesus' blood has already been applied to the sins of those who would believe in him. And so they're remembering, they're remembering that covenant. They're remembering what Jesus has done. They're remembering Jesus' death. Those who eat the bread and drink the cup, they are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. All right? And that is what um, 1 Corinthians 11 says in verse 26, that they are proclaiming the Lord's death. All right? So this is the new covenant that we are under. One thing that should also be understood is that this covenant is an answer to other covenants. This covenant comes as a result of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. This covenant comes as a result of the covenant that God makes with David. And this covenant comes through and in the context of the covenant that God makes with Moses. All right? in order to take God's people into the new covenant, all of those things, it, it comes it comes there and it starts there. And it, it starts within the last days of that old covenant and overlaps it. And Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, expanding out to all of Judea, going up north to Samaria, and then everywhere else, all right? So it's going to come from there and it's going to go out, all right? So God deals with men. And when we look at God's dealing with different people in the Bible, we need to look for the context of this. The context of this. What covenant is this person under? What does that require of them? What have, has this person and not just that we need to also pay attention to okay what has this person been told to do are they being obedient or disobedient to the things that god has told them to do you understand this is very 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 important and will help us a lot in understanding some of the things in the bible and and even um being able to understand our own situation as i said before this is written for our instruction right so we have these covenants that the that god gives us in the word to see his dealings with different people and it's not because god changes over time or because god deals differently with people in different periods of time it is because of a covenantal context God has a certain covenantal context with this person at this time, and God has a certain covenantal context with this person at this time. You understand? God is true to his word. Going back to what was said before. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Another thing that um, we should understand it's not just that um, there are certain covenants that certain people were under with regards to their relationship with God, but that there are certain God-ordained institutions that govern how we relate to each other, all right? And these are God's ideas. They're not ours. And so we are not allowed to trifle with them. We are not allowed to trifle with these. And uh, I'm going to speak about three of them. One of them we get from creation, and that is marriage. From Genesis 1 and 2, we have man and woman. Genesis 2 gives us a bit more in terms of marriage, but marriage is a creational reality. It's not a lifestyle choice. It's a creational reality. God has a purpose for it and 
obviously he intended for it to be normative. All right? So we have the trivialization of marriage in today's day and age where we have people annulling their marriages for flippant reasons. And this is something that the Pharisees came to address Jesus about even in his day, 2,000 years ago. Matthew chapter 19 from verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he, that's Jesus, answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So this is an institution that God has created. All right? God has joined them together, and we can separate them. Now, Adam and Eve are used as the prototypical man and woman, of course, because they are, you understand? And this is as a response to the Pharisees who are speaking about a hypothetical man who has a hypothetical wife that he wants to divorce for any reason. So this applies to any of us or all of us, all right? Um, someone that I know and love very much once told me, that this only refers to Adam and Eve. God brought them together. He hasn't brought every man and woman together. Um, if that were true, however, Jesus' answer here would make absolutely no sense in the context of what the Pharisees are asking him, which is about any man who wants to divorce his wife. Any man who is married wanting to divorce his wife. Then... What happened between Adam and Eve, which, of course, is not analogical for anything. It's not a prototype for anything. It doesn't teach us anything about what's going on underneath. Then that has no relevance to any man and his wife. Jesus' answer makes no sense in that case. All right? Every man and wife is joined together by God. And no man should separate them. Of course except by his stipulations. When you have a marriage, then you have a household, right? And the Bible has household codes, right? Read to you the shortest one. Colossians chapter 3 from verse 18, and we'll go into chapter 4, end with verse 1. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So we have household codes here. And it addresses wives and husbands, children, and parents, or fathers, right? And slaves and masters. If you are an employee, someone else's business, you in a sense serve that household as a servant. And so this would apply to you if you are an employee at someone else's business, all right? Um... So that is the institution of the family that comes about with marriage, all right? God has also given us the civil order. When God was making the Noahic covenant, part of what he told us to do, part of what he told us to do is to make sure that we start dealing with things like, like homicide, 
whenever a human being is killed unlawfully and that law being God's law, it has to be dealt with, even if it is an animal that does it. Genesis chapter 9 from verse 5. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, and from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So we have this. This is God saying, this has to get done. This has to get done. And uh, from then until now, we've had civil rulers doing this very thing or not doing it. And uh, God help us if we're not doing it. We are under the Noahic covenant. And every civil order under the Noahic covenant has a responsibility under God and to the citizens of that country to make sure that innocent blood isn't spilt. And to make sure that innocent blood that is spilt is avenged. And that is the word of God to all of us under Noah, right? Romans chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So this tells us that God brought the authority. God came up with it, right? And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Alright? So, we are to be subject to the civil authorities because God put them there. And those who are there, they are established by God. And they are God's servants, according to verse 4. They serve God. They are ministers of God to you for good. And if you do what is evil, then they have the sword. This is the same sword that is commanded to be used in Genesis chapter 9, dealing with homicide. All right? Dealing with innocent blood being spilt. This is important. All right? So civil orders that we have now that bear the sword for nothing are to repent. All right? And this tells us how they are to operate, also tells us how we are to operate with regards to them. We are to obey them because of God, not because of them, which is another problem. So some, some people might be rebellious and not obey the governing authorities, and that's a problem. Others might be statists and they obey the governing authorities for the sake of the governing authorities because it's the governing authorities if the governing authorities tell you to um kill all the male israelites in egypt you will obey them because that's what they said if they tell you to kill all the children in bethlehem that's what you will do because that's that's what the governing authority if they tell you to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue that's what you will do because you're doing it for the sake of the governing authority you understand so it's important here to understand that the governing authority is not absolute um it is established by god and so you obey the governing authority for god's sake and so that means that unlike your obedience to god it has its limits, and its limits would have to do with, again, the fact that the governing authority is established by God. Your understanding of that, that sets the limits. So if they do not obey God, and they want to drag you along in their disobedience, you might have to move different. If they tell you to disobey God, you might have to move different. All right? So... All of that is there once we understand, again, that the civil order 
is not its own creature, as some unbelieving civil orders tend to think the civil order is God's creature and the civil authorities are God's servants. And so they are to kiss the sun or perish. And then the institution that um, we still have with us today is the church, right? The church of Jesus Christ. Not of Latter-day Saints, right? But the church of Jesus Christ. We see here in Matthew 18 that um, God has given, Jesus has given certain um, authority to the church of God to adjudicate certain things. Um, in Matthew chapter 16, he says that he has given the church the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose. All right? And uh, we can see this playing out here in what I'm going to read now, which is Matthew chapter 18 from verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered, gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Alright? So, there's sin going on. And, uh, of course, within certain rules, from the personal level to the entire ecclesiastical level, God has given the church the authority to treat someone who claims to be a Christian as though he's not. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right? And he's saying this to Jews. So a Gentile is not a Jew. He's outside of God's people. A tax collector is a traitor. He's not he's a he might be a Jew, but he's a traitor. Because he is um as tax collectors are assumed to do, greasing himself, greasing his own hands by telling people that their taxes are higher than they really are. You understand? So you treat him like that. Treat him like he's not a Christian. And you have the authority to do this because I have given you the keys, the keys referenced in Matthew 16 with which you can bind on earth and loose on earth and that being the same thing in heaven. You understand? You have that authority as a church. You understand? This is... The church that, again, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, that he is going to build on the rock of his own lordship. His own being the Messiah, him being the, 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 the Christ, the anointed. You understand? He's going to build the church on that. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So this is something that Jesus has built just like the civil order is something that is instituted by God according to Romans 13. Just like marriage is something that God created in Genesis 2. And Jesus alludes to that in Matthew chapter 19. That God joined them together so nobody could separate them. The family is God's thing. The civil order is God's thing. The church is God's thing. And so when we're dealing with these things, these things play by God's rules, not by our rules. People usually talk about the regulative principle of worship with regards to what you should do in service being regulated purely by what the word of God says in terms of structure and, and, and those sorts of things. While I tip my hat to that idea, something similar should be said about the family and about the civil order, because these are all God's institutions. We don't get to do our own thing as far as what God has said, because of course, there are ways in which um, you can have a freedom. If your family wants to wear um, ugly pajamas and take pictures for Christmas, that's not something 
that um, God has stipulated against or that you can't do in, in such a way or whatever. But the things that God has said cannot be ignored and are not optional when it comes to the family or the civil order or the church. And that's what I wanted to say. Like These are institutions that are created by God and should be respected as such. And so when we want to deal with these sorts of things, we should be going to the scriptures to find out how we should think about familial, ecclesiastical, and civil issues. All right? These things, all of these things that I've discussed, I believe are very, very important for a Christian vision prescription. And uh, my throat is hurting, so that means that I've been doing this for quite some time. The last thing that I want to say to you is, please, buy me a doubles. I will continue to um, create more ridiculous ads to ask you to do the same. But this time, let me just talk to you from the heart and say, please, buy me a doubles. Praise Jesus. You made it through the whole episode, the show done Hope you get some positive in the nucleus You know, a proton Anyhow, you know this slogan Preach Jesus, Jesus.